We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're speaking with some allies of built environment professionals about public engagement and how they're bringing the great work architects do to people in the community. Our guest in this episode is Rachel Bernstone. Rachel is a journalist, editor and communications advisor to architects who has specialised in communicating about architecture and sustainable design for more than 20 years. In 2016, Rachel founded the consulting agency Sounds Like Design to help architects communicate in a way that brings in more of their ideal clients and projects. In this interview, Rachel talks about the similarities between filmmaking and architecture, how Rachel delivers marketing, business development and CPD services in the architecture profession, and the importance of being effective at communicating so an architecture firm's vision is accessible and understandable to the public. I'll now hand over to Kimberly Huey, an Imagine representative based in Victoria. Let's jump in. So welcome everybody to the Hearing Architecture podcast season three. So in this episode, we are talking about architecture and public engagement or the relationship for it. And joining me today, I've got Rachel Bernstone with me, who is a journalist and the founder of Sounds Like Design. And today we're going to be discussing about her role in being the bridge between architects and the public, as well as her practice Sounds Like Design. Firstly, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today and taking the time to have a discussion have a talk about what your role is in our architecture community and I guess if I could just get you to give us a little bit of a background introduction of yourself as well that sure. would be lovely. Thanks so much for inviting me it's really great to be here and as you can probably tell from my bio I'm really interested in architects and how they engage with the public and with consumers of architecture but also people who use buildings And that came about because I was originally, as you said, a journalist. And so I had wanted to study when I was at uni, sorry, when I was in secondary school, I'd thought about studying law or interior design. So there was always an interest in design, even from those early days. But my best friend applied to study journalism. And so that prompted me to also put that on my application. And that's the course that I ended up getting into. So that's how I got into journalism at RMIT. And it was almost quite by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when, when I graduated from university in 1992, there weren't a lot of jobs. There was a recession in Australia. And so after that, I went to live in London for four years where I got caught up in working in film marketing, which was a bit of a departure from journalism. And so I came back to Australia in the late 1990s and I got a job at Fox Studios in Sydney, again, working in marketing And I decided I wanted to work as a journalist and I had met uh, in the meantime Davina Jackson who was editing Architecture Australia at the time. She um, was at an event, a student awards program and my friend Martine who's an architect invited me to go with her. And so I had this chance meeting with Davina Jackson and she told me that she'd done an architecture course and that led me to look into the Masters of Architecture History and Theory at New South Wales Uni and I thought if she can do that I can do that 
<laughs> and that's that's how I came to be studying the masters in 2001 because I had decided by then that I wanted to write about architecture and meet and talk to architects and so that was sort of the beginning of my um my entry into the profession and learning to talk with architects about what makes them tick and how they contribute to the realm that we all live in. I think it's a very, very interesting bio and I love how you said that it happened, I guess, progressively. It sounds a bit serendipitous in a way that it, it just fell into place. It was. And especially looking back, I just turned 50 this year and I can see a lot of markers on my career path, which is now 30 years long, which at the time I didn't understand how those things might be useful in the future. I I didn't understand that marketing would be very helpful and then journalism came later and then the architecture thing came later again. And looking back, I can see a fairly clear path to where I am, but I certainly didn't see that when I set out. And I see a lot of students and young people these days, you know, not sure how their path might unfold. And I would say to them, you know, just have the confidence to follow your interests and hope that things will turn out for the best over time. They usually do. Yeah. I think those were the words I'd love to hear or like many of those words of comfort I needed to hear a lot back then. And I think even during the past two years, it was quite challenging trying to navigate through like finding out where my identity in the world of architecture is. So that is something words of comfort which I think everybody would appreciate I think before I continue into perhaps discussing your involvement into architecture how did architecture come about like apart from your connections as well would you think that architecture has always been part of your interest yeah that's an interesting question and it's again something that I've only really reflected on recently but I have looked back over my childhood and realized that when I was in primary school my dad was very interested in architecture and I grew up in Melbourne and he was taking us often on the weekend to places like Como and Ripon Lee and Werribee Mansion to look at, you know, significant examples of historic architecture. But also we lived in Melbourne's outer eastern suburbs in Baronia and my parents were thinking of building a new house on a block. And so we spent a lot of time on the weekend going through project homes. I particularly remember going to Vermont and there was an A.V. Jennings display village there. And Mm. I enjoyed going through those things on the weekend and looking in cupboards and, you know, exploring floor plans and working out how rooms were connected. And I didn't have a sense at that time that I was interested in design. But Mm. looking back, I can see that I did have an interest in built spaces and how they might impact, you know, the way that you lived in or occupied a house. And I guess that's how I became interested as well in interior design and thinking that I might study interior design. So there certainly was an interest in those design-focused topics from an early age. And then when I got my first job editing a building magazine in 2002, I wanted to take that building magazine in an architecture direction because that's what I particularly wanted to explore. I was lucky after I just was appointed to that role that Britt Anderson had just won the gold medal and she was one of the first women to take out that award and it was fairly significant at the time. I think it was in 2002 or three. 
I was able to interview her for the magazine and write an article about her career and the significant contribution that she'd made through teaching and practice as well. And that was a fantastic experience for me to have a chance to talk to someone who was at the top of their game at that point. And I really came away from that interview feeling like I was in the right place. You know, this was going to be a good job for me in terms of being able to have the conversations that I wanted to have and really explore those interests that I'd managed to expand upon at university but hadn't yet started to put into practice. Yeah, yeah. And I would kind of like to add on to the fact that prior to even writing for architecture, you were in film marketing. And I think to a degree, there is that architectural aspect in that you use, probably because I am very interested in the stage sets of films and how things are being constructed together in production. And so I think there is quite of a niche segue because film also requires storytelling and I'd like to think that potentially that has also influenced the way you've written in the architecture publications. And I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more on your experience in your time contributing to architecture publications as well. Yeah, I think that there are some similarities between films and architecture in the sense that, you know, filmmakers and architects are both constructing different realities, aren't they? They're imagining, you know, a a vision of the future or sometimes the past and it might be dystopian or it might be really positive, but there is that sense of being able to shape spaces and environments that's certainly common to both. And I think that one of the things that really drove me when I was in living in London was, you know, obviously Australians go to London and they want to travel and they want to go to Europe a lot. And a lot of people, you know, have a particular bent that they're following. Well, I found out very early on in Glasgow, actually, where I discovered Charles Rennie Mackintosh, that architecture was going to be the thing that would dictate where I chose to go in Europe and what I would look at when I was there. So I went to Geary's Guggenheim in Bilbao when it was new and I went to Brussels to see the Art Nouveau buildings and I went to Prague to explore the medieval streets and places and I went to Denmark and I, you know, was really grateful to be able to go to Louisiana, which was a modern art museum. So I was able to shape my time in Europe to be able to explore architecture and bear in mind that this was before I decided to study architecture. So this was part of the nascent stage, if you like, of me working out what architecture is. And I think one of the things that I learned through that travel and through that exploration is I was looking at buildings very much in terms of them being walls and doors and windows and roofs and, you know, streets and things that were sort of constructed and created realities. It wasn't until I went to study the masters at university that I came to realise that architecture is not so much focused on the materials and the methods of construction, which had been what I thought it was about, but it's much more actually focused on space and volume and light and the way things interconnect or flow. And so studying the masters and being introduced to the writings of, you know, the seminal architects that have informed the discourse gave me a whole new view about what architecture was and it made me realise that most people in the community, especially those that don't have experience or training in architecture, 
they probably are more likely to be looking at the world of the built environment through the lens that I was before I studied it. You know, that, well, it's got windows and a door and a roof and I know that's a pitched roof or a gabled roof or a skillion roof, but, you know, my knowledge doesn't go much beyond that. And I think that that's where one of the disconnects comes from between architects who want to convey to people what it is they do and where the benefits are and the people they're talking to. They're not even talking about the same thing. You know, there's this great chasm between architects talking about space and light and volume and connection and people talking about bricks and concrete and windows and doors and splashbacks and countertops. You know, they're just different sides of a coin. So I think that what I have tried to do in my writing is bridge that what I perceive to be a gap between how architects communicate about design and how most people in the public think about or currently think about what design is. I think it's quite a poignant remark about like perhaps the way we describe architecture when we've studied through it as well as the public because I think personally myself before I even entered architecture school I had no idea what architecture really was because I think I was stuck in that limbo of not really sure what I wanted to do I actually got talked into studying architecture because it seemed like the next fitting thing for me personally and so It took me some time to actually understand how to describe space, especially when I communicate with a lot of my friends outside of architecture that I find that I have to switch brains, as well as when I started writing reviews myself, contributing to another online design journal, I realized that sometimes I have to step back and try and find a way to translate what architects want to say for other people who could understand, because evidently I would like to have my family and friends understand my work, but I also need to think of changing descriptions and such, which is quite a challenge. Yes. So I would like to know, because you have been evidently been writing for a very long time, then do you think there has been a shift in the way we communicate or like how architects or how journalists have communicate over the process? I think so. One of the things that I've observed, and this started early in the phase of me being a journalist, and so... You know, I worked for that first building magazine, then I worked for an architecture magazine, and then I was the editor of Steel Profile for 10 years. And during the course of that time, I've interviewed more than 1,500 architects, some who are, you know, household names that you would know, like gold medalists in Australia and people like David Chipperfield and Toyo Ito and David Adjay. I've been really privileged to, you know, talk to them about their work. But I've also interviewed a lot of lesser well-known architects like project architects, you know, working on schools and hospitals and even a prison. And Mm. what struck me talking to those people and having those conversations is that by and large, architects are talking in a way that is pretty inaccessible to regular people on the street. But they're talking about the buildings and the spaces that we all live in and occupy as a matter of course. You know, we a lot of us live in cities. We either go to schools or hospitals or, you know, other type of public institutions that have had an architect involved in them. And I think in some ways people might like to have more import or engagement in the design of those spaces, but they lack the knowledge or the language or the familiarity to be able to have the conversations with architects to be able to engage. And then the other side of that coin, of course, is that architects 
have over time been more and more removed from the clients and end users of the buildings because of the procurement process. So there's, I understand there's a whole heap of factors at play there, but I think that one of the barriers is this issue of language and the way that mm. art, architects communicate. And having those conversations with 1,500 architects, I mean, it didn't happen overnight, but over time I started to build up a picture myself that there is this disconnect and it's always bothered me. And the reason for that is that I think that good design has the power to transform people's lives and to alleviate the strain that we as a species are having on the planet. You know, we've got a problem at the moment where we've used too many resources and caused global warming. And design has a role to play in addressing that. And we're getting to a sort of tipping point in the community where people understand that we actually need to take much more urgent action than we have understood over the past 30 years. So, People are now ready and prepared to be engaged with the issues, but there's still this gap in communication. And so for me, I really want to, at this point, start to try and help architects bridge that gap. And this is also not new. So in 2004 in Sydney, I lived in Sydney then, the Association of Australian Architects was launched and that was a sort of a grassroots group that was very much founded on the notion of making architecture more accessible to the public. And I was a founding member and I was part of the group of volunteers that came up with tours of Sydney, like walking tours of Sydney. So this is something that I've been really keen to contribute you know, my comms expertise too for coming up to 20 years. And I still think there's quite a way to go. I think that some architects have done a really good job of communicating with a very broad audience and with different types of audiences, but many architects are still stuck in the one sort of track of talking to other architects and people who know the lingo and haven't yet been able to acquire the skills to broaden their reach. So that's something that I'm pretty keen to help them overcome. Yeah, and I think that obviously, thank you for the segue, would then make me ask if that is the core reason as to why Sounds Like Design was founded at the first place. Because when I first encountered you during the parlour light at the end of the tunnel, I really, really enjoyed your discourse with Sanea and how perhaps like just addressing like how us and the architecture industry can communicate with the outside or like architecture enthusiasts as well? Yeah, so I think that um, there's a couple of really key moves to this. So one is to actually change the language and that's about stripping out archi-speak or archi-babble, some people call it, you know, that really professional language that can be quite exclusionary to people who don't understand it. And there is a, a time and a place for that kind of language, you know, at an architecture conference where it's only architects in the room, of course, course you can speak that sort of well understood language in that environment but when you're talking to clients or building users or you know the general public there's not really a place for that kind of language that can be a barrier to people understanding but then as well as that there's a next sort of step that architects need to take which is to really try and grapple with how they can communicate their value and i know that in some spheres of the profession there is a sense that we shouldn't have to make the effort to communicate our value. You know, people should just get what we do. The work should speak for itself. If people don't understand the benefits of architecture, well, then, you know, too bad. We'll just work with those who do. But I think that 
the world is changing and those changes dictate that architects need to change with it. A lot of that's got to do with the emergence of social media. Social media means that everybody is just one click away from the people that they want to purchase from, you know, whether that's to purchase a pair of shoes or commission an architect to design your house. It's made brands and companies much more accessible and consumers now expect to be able to have conversations with those people who create things so that they can make informed decisions about whether or not they'd want to buy from those people. And architects are not immune from this shift that's happening within society more broadly where a lot of different types of professions and makers are being forced to become more accessible and more open. And so if you want to prosper in this new marketing landscape, you sort of need to understand how it works and what consumers expect and deliver some of that because otherwise you're likely to be left behind. Yeah, I would also add perhaps in today's society, I think a lot of people rely on efficiency because social media has made efficiency somehow like the pillar that we all need to aim for. And I think another term I would like to add to that, perhaps some people may disagree, is potentially democratization in our industry as well. I agree. And I think that's something, you know, that's a useful goal to aim for. I mean, basically my mission, if you like, for Sounds Like Design is I want to help architects communicate the value of good design so that then together as a profession and a community, we can increase the demand for good design and create better built environments because then we all benefit, you know, if we're successful and the planet benefits as well. And so if that involves democratising language and meeting people where they're at rather than thinking that they will find you, I think that that's a useful shift that architects can try and make. And I do hear pushback from certain architects around those ideas. Like some of the things that architects have told me over the years are that they don't want to be seen as too commercial. And I've had another architect tell me that it's dumbing down to strip architecture language out of (laughs) you're covering your eyes uh, to strip lingo out that other people can't necessarily understand. And, And I disagree with those characterizations of what this is about. I think that you touched on this notion that social media has made everything more efficient. It's also made everyone have much shorter attention spans. Mm. And what that means is that you now have about eight seconds from the time someone first lands on your website, if they've come there from Instagram or another social media platform, to make an impression, to connect with them, to let the person know that you're offering the kind of service that they need to achieve the kind of transformation that they're looking for. And if they don't get that message in eight seconds, they're likely to leave your website and possibly never come back. Hmm. And there's not like there's a lack of choice around you know, finding an architect. I mean, there's more architects graduating from universities in Australia than there ever have been at any point in history before. Mm. And those architects are competing for eyeballs and attention. And they're not just competing against architects, they're competing against other service providers like building designers and builders and interior designers and project managers to some extent. And, you know, there's all sorts of professions and disciplines that are trying to appeal to and attract the same client base as architects. And so if architects take the view that 
you know, it's beneath them or they don't want to engage with consumers in this way. As I mentioned before, they're likely to be left behind. The market share for architects is likely to continue to shrink unless architects as a profession take a view that actually we need to change the way we communicate and engage with people. Well, that's my view anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And I think about the attention span comment is quite ironic. I don't know if ironic is the right term because for us as architecture graduates, when we apply for firms, right, our main aim or the main message that we've always been given is to, you need to be able to capture your audience's attention in the first five pages or the first two pages, even like, or even your cover page has to be attention grabbing. So I find that quite contradictory of, yeah, a little bit ironic when some people aren't very accepting towards that, especially when that's how we've also been taught to market ourselves. And even the rise of Instagram portfolios, like that's something we have to do. And I think also coming down to the communication, how we have our own speak that's also something we don't have as much experience during university as well, because we're learning all the theory and it's very hard for us to kind of how do we say translate that back as well because even in university when we're presenting for crits it is two people who know it so I guess it poses the challenge of changing the way we communicate to the public as well yes the other question I have for you is how has that been working with architects and I guess working for clients perhaps who would like to work with architects through sounds like design yeah, so I um, sounds like design has three main ways of offering services to architects, and they're designed to be pitched at different price points. Mm. And part of part of that is to do with the fact that I want these services and ideas around how to improve the way you communicate to be available to everyone. So the first thing, the first tier, if you like, of my service offering is my free newsletters. So. I have two newsletters. One's called The Drill, which is a curated newsletter that goes out on Fridays where I basically read all the news that you don't then have to and I put it in a in a structured format every week and subscribers can skim those headlines and feel more up to date and more informed about what's going on in the profession. You know, there's projects and policy and regulation and events and awards and all sorts of things that you're likely to want to know about. But perhaps not have time to keep up with. Mm. And the idea is that I don't even want our architects to read every article. It's just enough to skim the headlines and to be able to click on one or two articles that are of interest and relevance to your own practice. So that's the first thing that I do. Mm -hmm. And then I also have a second newsletter that goes out fortnightly and it's more around business development and business strategy and communications. And I write blog articles on topics that I think are useful and relevant and they're based on my discussions with clients and things I see in the news. And so that newsletter also contains sort of a wealth of information, including on my website, how to's, you know, how to pitch your article to 
editors of magazines and which magazines to apply to first and all that sort of strategy thinking that to me is second nature because I've been writing as a journalist and being an editor for so long but is foreign to a lot of architects. So I've just spelled out all that stuff and there's sample emails that you can copy and paste and use for yourself. And and so there's lots of resources like that on my website that are free for people to be able to pick up anything that they need. The second thing that I do is I have CPD courses Mm. and that has arisen out of what I've observed as a need within the CPD offering. There's not a lot in the way of business development or marketing training and there's a couple of reasons for that and there was going to be more of a focus on that in the latest national competency standards but in fact that was watered out in the final revision so it's not something that made it in this time but I still think it's really useful for architects to think about doing some CPD marketing and I've got a course that they can participate in it's basically an introduction to architecture marketing it's a happens over a few weeks there's interaction with me and there's videos and workbooks and again lots of resources that can help you first of all, work out what your strategy is and then work out how to implement it. Mm. And that course is based on my one-on-one consulting package, which I do with practice owners and directors. So that's a program that's called Review and Reset. And it's a service package that takes place over three to four months, depending on the architect's availability and ability to provide feedback as we go through the process. But at the end of that three-month program, I provide them with a blueprint and then directors can either start to implement the action steps in that blueprint with their their in-house teams or they might choose to engage an external copywriter or do a website update or brief a social media person. But they'd be working then from a sort of well-defined plan rather than doing things in an ad hoc and a disconnected way. Mm. And so I've had quite a few architects go through that program and some of them have come up with new websites and they've changed their fee proposals and they've basically made their communications much more client focused. And it's about, again, stripping out that archy speak and making things much more accessible and easy for potential clients to understand and to be able to engage them. Yeah. So those are the sort of three ways that I provide services to and work with architects. And out of the three, do you have one? It's kind of like picking your favourite child, but do you have one that you particularly enjoy the most doing? No, they all serve different purposes. So I love the drill because that keeps me up to date with what's happening in the profession. And every Friday when I hit send on it, I feel like I know more and it provides me with useful insights and intel that I can share with my clients and say, you know, there's this new research and you can talk about that in your next newsletter or you could use that to change your fee proposal or, you know, there's all sorts of applications for that sort of knowledge. Mm -hmm. I love doing review and reset because it's a really great way for me to dive into a practice and ask about what's working, what marketing things are you currently using, what are you finding success with, how are you measuring success, you know, how does what you're doing on Instagram or how many fee proposals you're sending actually translate into how much new business you bring into the practice each year. So that's one of the things that's become apparent to me over the course of doing this work is that 
marketing is so deeply ingrained with your practice business strategy that you can't actually separate the two. Mm. And so it's really important when you think about marketing and, and the messaging that you want to put out to your future customers to actually think about who you want those future customers to be, because there's no point making messaging around hospitals. If you don't want to work in hospitals anymore, you actually want to do just aged care now, for example. So it's really strategic work doing review and reset and it's really rewarding and you get to see practices making quite significant changes like quite a few of them this year have either updated or launched brand new websites. And I'm so proud of the efforts that they've gone to in a way to appeal to and become more accessible to clients. Mm. And it's paying off in the sense that they're seeing traction now from what's happening on social media to more people coming to the website, to more people asking for fee proposals, to more people engaging them. And, you know, as a result, that effort that they went to to do that package with me is producing the kind of results and effects that they had hoped. So that's been really encouraging to see that. The thing about the courses and what's so fun about those is that you can achieve scale when you're doing online training. So review and reset's great, but because it's so intensive, I can only do about 10 of those a year. Mm. Whereas with the courses, you know, I could have 20 or 30 people in an intake for the course. And that means that people are getting not just the benefit of my knowledge, but in the group, they're getting each other's experiences and they're able to point to things that they've each tried or run an experiment, you know, doing Facebook ads or Google ad, you know, and people are bringing to the table their own insights and experiences, which has a benefit for everybody else that's in that group. Mm. And so the courses are fantastic because that's a way for me to help more people at a time. And I'm sort of feeling like that's becoming more imperative. I mean, that the urgent need around addressing climate change is not going to go away. (laughs) So the more architects we have that are equipped to deal with those challenges and conveying the benefits of what they do, Mm. the better off we'll all be. Yeah. It's nice to see that there are people who are starting to realise the urgency and such. And I think it's, again, as you said, it's not being left behind and being part of that social commentary because I think to an extent architecture despite being a shaping of space but the space is also a reflection of the zeitgeist or if not like the important social issues around us as well. Yes that's absolutely true. Mm, Perhaps it might be a repeat of what we've discussed earlier on but for those I guess who may start to have a bit of a fear or perhaps a bit of a worry about in quotes left behind are you happy to impart some advice or some suggestions as well yeah absolutely I think you know we've touched on some of the things that I think are key to being a better communicator those are you know eliminating archy speak and being very clear about conveying your value and I guess for some architects that's actually quite difficult because A lot of architects have a very clear idea in their minds of the value that they can provide to clients, but they haven't ever had to articulate that, you know, either in writing or in presentations. And so it can be difficult to grapple with something, especially when it's interesting thinking about the eight seconds and the attention span. Mm -hmm. And architecture is such a complex and 
a process that unfolds over sort of two or three years in some cases, you know, from design to construction to defects to occupation. There are not concepts and ideas within architecture that you can easily distill into messaging that someone can digest in eight seconds. You know, it takes a very skilled communicator to be able to take the complexity of architecture and make it into messaging that people can readily grapple with in such short attention spans. The way that I would suggest that people might start to think about how to do that, and I say do this with every sort of communications activity that you're thinking of embarking on, whether it's an awards entry or you want to get something published in a magazine or you're submitting a proposal or a submission for a new project and you're going up against others, So there's four key questions that I want everyone to think about whenever they start to embark on a new communications activity. And so those questions are, who am I speaking to? What's the key message I want to share? How do I distribute that message? And what do I want my intended audience to do next? Mm. And basically those are very journalistic questions. If you can come up with answers to those four questions, that's going to frame what you say, who you say it to, where you're going to put that message, whether it's on social media or in a fee proposal or on your website or in an email. Bearing in mind this whole, you know, short attention span thing, you want to tell people what you want them to do next. You don't want to leave it to chance or leave them to sort of figure it out on their own. And so, you know, if you've paid much attention to modern marketing and you've heard of calls to action or CTAs and you're meant to put one of them on every social media post to ask people to visit your website, (laughs) we're getting to the point with communications where you need to spell out now I want you to pick up the phone and call me yeah. <laughs> you know, or sign up here to receive my email newsletters or put your name down on this wait list to join my course. Mm. Like you actually have to make it very explicit what you want people to do because people's attention spans are so short and fractured that if you leave it up to them, they're going to get distracted by the next shiny thing and they're going to forget. And then, you know, your message just dissipated. <laughs> and so... This way, you're making it easy for them to, you know, click here or link in bio or send me an email or make a phone call. And that way, you're encouraging the conversation to progress. And that's how you get people off Instagram to your website, onto your email list, and then hopefully in time to engage you for a project because nobody's going to see one post on Instagram and call you and commission you to design their next house it's just not how modern marketing works yeah yeah and I guess like in doing so it's about steering how you'd like the architects to communicate with the public as well as how would you like the public to understand as you say like the importance of architecture as well yeah it's very important to be deliberate and to frame you know the message that you want to tell mm. because if you leave it up to others to grapple with what you're saying and to try and draw out the most important points you might find that the most important points don't resonate or land with those people i had an interesting conversation with an architect recently who was saying that they'd had some work published and they'd had it published in a timber magazine and a sustainability magazine and domain, same project across those different types of publications. Mm -hmm. And the architect said to me, none of those journalists was able to 
settle upon what I thought were the most important factors or qualities or characteristics of the project. Yeah. And my message there is you need to tell them (laughs) the most important thing about your project. Yeah. If you want the headline to say the most important thing about this building is that it's painted red, you have to tell the journalists that because journalists are as time poor as any other profession Mm. and they don't have the time to nut into things and and drill down and ask questions the way that they did even 10 years ago. Mm. And so therefore it's up to the architect to be much more deliberate in the way they put the message out in the first place. Yeah, supposedly like say that when we've hit the nail on the head and that we're able to communicate with the public, what do you think the outcome would be when they are more aware of what architecture is then or like the importance of architecture then? I think that um, if we start moving in that direction, we open up the possibility of having the conversations around the big ideas. Yeah. So we can move the focus away from, you know, the choice of materials or why it has four bedrooms and two bathrooms, for example. Or if you think about a hospitality project, you know, the bars on the left-hand side and the kitchens at the back and the doors at the front and, you know, the tables are on the right. And rather than having those conversations that are very much about what you can see in the pictures, mm-hmm. You can start to delve into the process and the decision-making and why things were done in a certain way and what the benefits are of making those very considered decisions. And, you know, I know from my conversations with architects that there's usually not one reason that a design is delivered in, in a particular way. You know, there's three or four different factors at play you know there might be performance or there might be sustainability or there might be function or there might be aesthetics you know all of these different factors and sometimes these are competing interests yeah the architect has had to think about and try and resolve and prioritize and balance and if we can start to talk about big ideas that are driving projects I think that's how you might start to get the public more interested in having these conversations in the first place. Mm. So I think that if architects can become more skilled communicators, they'll open up a platform for people to have more interesting and engaging conversations and to demand better built environments. You know, if if I know it's possible to create a playground that also collects excess rainwater and keeps it on site and that becomes a nature play, you know, with a creek running through it at particular times of the year, then I can start to think about ways that my family might start to play in that space in summer and in winter, you know, so it opens up new possibilities for me as a consumer or a user of that space to think about it quite differently. Hmm. And I think that with this new level of literacy around design and design issues, we're going to start to have a more informed and conscious consumer base to be able to have more progressive discussions with. In fact, there's a really great example of of how that has happened in the ACT. Mm. And I think that it's worth pointing that out here. So in the ACT in 1997, 
the government introduced uh, mandatory energy efficiency reporting for houses when they were being sold. Mm. So that meant that if you were selling a house, you had to get an energy efficiency report and you had to disclose it to the potential buyers. And that meant that they had a way of assessing very quickly the performance and the likely heating and cooling costs of a house. Yeah. Now, what that has meant in the 24 years since the government introduced that as a blanket rule is that you now have a class of consumers in the ACT who completely understand what energy efficiency ratings are. They completely understand the difference between an eight-star house and a three-star house. And now they're paying a premium for eight star houses because Mm. they have the measures and the metrics to be able to compare things side by side and they understand the benefits to them in terms of comfort and bills and um, even, you know, climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. So there's multiple levels of information that are being imparted in this rating and that means that you now have a home buying market in the ACT that is much more aware of energy efficiency concerns than anywhere else in Australia. Yeah. And that means that if you're an architect operating in that environment, you've got this consumer audience that gets what you're talking about. You don't have to educate them anymore. The government has educated people by introducing these ratings. And we can see with with a practice called Lighthouse Architecture and Science, they've made it their business to retrofit existing Canberra homes, two and three star homes, without knocking them down and turn them into eight and nine star houses. Mm. And that's basically their business model. And they combine architecture and science in order to achieve that outcome. And we can see from their their social media posts that they have a wait list for that service. So they have more people, prospective clients, who want to do that than they can possibly serve at the moment. And so that's a pretty unusual position for an architecture practice to be in, that they've got a wait list for their services and they have more clients than they can possibly serve. But it is possible when you have a level playing field and you can communicate the benefits and the value of what you do. And I think that, you know, architects in in a lot of ways need to be much more, much better advocates or agitators in terms of getting government to get on board and make some of these changes. So the federal government building ministers committed to rolling out this energy efficiency rating scheme across Australia, across all the states, like basically taking the ACT model and introducing it in every other state and territory in 2019. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they haven't done that. And so architects as a profession could be much more vocal about the need for government to regulate so that that would lift awareness within the public. And then it wouldn't be beholden upon architects to be educating people about the importance of energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. The market would be educating people and architects could then just be explaining how they can contribute to that outcome. Yeah, I guess it also comes back down to the importance of making ourselves accessible at the first place. Yes, it does. It's very important that we need to understand that we need that time and patience to have the people understand our perspectives. But the first thing, as you said, is to put ourselves 
in the level playing field. Yeah. That notion of understanding and being more accessible, a lot of the reasons that architects are not currently great communicators to a broad audience is because of the way that they're taught to communicate at university. And you touched on this a bit yourself when you were talking about the way that you're told to, you know, make yourself memorable, you know, in the first couple of pages of your portfolio. But there are other things that are conveyed at university, especially in studio settings, you know, communication and critique in that environment Mm. can be quite combative and challenging. And so that can sometimes lead architects to feel defensive when someone challenges their ideas, you know, in a professional setting. Mm -hmm. And it means that they come across as combative or defensive, you know, perhaps with a client. And so there's a whole heap of reasons why architects come out of university with a particular view of the world. You know, we touched on the idea that people believe the work should speak for itself. Mm -hmm. There's a very strong tendency to speak to the profession in magazines, at conferences, you know, podcasts. A lot of architects are launching podcasts and they're podcasts for other architects. (laughs) And I would like to see architects launching podcasts for consumers, you know, and making the profession more accessible that way. And then I know as well that, you know, if you're running an architecture practice, you're probably under a lot of time and financial pressures and you're not necessarily having a lot of uh, space and, you know, thinking time to be working out your business development or your client pipeline or, or your marketing strategies. So that's another barrier to people being able to make progress in this area. Mm. Another thing that I've observed is that, you know, Sanea and I talked about this when we had that great conversation for Parlour last year, that architects love talking with images and drawings. You know, they're, they're much more comfortable talking to images and drawings and explaining things to accompany images and drawings. And Sanea has this great thing that she tries to talk to architects about, you know, please describe the project to me without any pictures. Yes, I love And that's that. really challenging <laughs> yeah. for a lot of architects. Yeah. And so, and that is very much tied up with this idea that architects are much more comfortable communicating with images and less comfortable communicating with words. So, you know, that's another barrier. Mm-hmm. And, and there's also this thing that we've talked about with jargon and archie yeah. speak. So there's quite a lot there for people to try and unpack. You know, I'm not suggesting that, you know, you're going to make the decision to become a better architecture communicator and then next week you will have nailed it. Like this is really intensive and time-consuming work yeah. and in actual fact it requires a cultural shift, you know. It requires the profession to say this is something that we agree on mass is really important and we're going to tackle it together. And we can see through the strides that Parler's made around gender equity that it's perfectly possible mm-hmm. for those kind of cultural shifts to happen. But I'm not suggesting that they're going to happen overnight in this case. <laughs> but I think they are they are necessary if architects want to reassert themselves or to claw back some of the ground that's been lost to project managers and other types of professions that have started to infiltrate this design, you know, service space and for architects to position themselves as the project lead that can really help people grapple with climate change. You know, I know from talking to my clients that um, there really isn't another building professional that is as well placed as architects 
to deal with retrofitting, you know, of homes and commercial buildings and all of the existing stock that we're going to have to very quickly bring into a low or zero carbon future, architects are the best placed professionals to lead that work. And so they need to be able to firstly assert themselves as that lead professional and then secondly connect with the clients who are going to be engaging them to undertake those services. Yeah. So we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, we've got a lot of work to do to become good (laughs) advocates as well. Like it's very, I just hope people are aware that marketing is a very big factor because even uh, my good friends, like they're not in the world of architecture, but they're very business minded. And you just hear about the chunk of effort that is spent in marketing in comparison to other things. So that's a useful point. Yeah. And one of the things that I do with clients when they're either starting review and reset or um, the course Mm -hmm. is I say to them, what percentage of your annual turnover do you think professional services firms spend on marketing? And most of them don't have a sense of what the industry average is and there's research into what the industry average is Mm. and so that's a that's a useful starting point you know what's the figure that you think you might need to invest in your business into becoming a better communicator Mm. and a lot of them are shocked to find that it's seven and a half percent like it's quite a lot of money yeah it is (laughs) yeah and like most architecture firms wouldn't be spending probably one or two percent and so I say to them I'm not suggesting that you should get your blueprint and then start spending seven percent what I want you to do is you have a blueprint and then you know what where to invest and how much time and energy to put into the tasks that I recommend and then you're going to look at your data and your metrics and you're going to use that and analyze that to work out what's paying dividends and what was a waste of time and money and you're going to do more of the positive stuff and less of the negative stuff and that's going to produce even better results. And then when you're getting better results, you might increase your spend to 3%. And so you don't have to go from 0 to 7%, you know, overnight. But I think having a benchmark like that where we know that that's what other professional services firms spend on marketing is a useful starting point to start thinking about, well, how much am I currently investing and how much would I be comfortable investing if I had a plan that was written specifically for me or that I developed in a course and then over time, if I was spending 7% and that was bringing in the right number of clients that I needed a year to have a profitable and enjoyable and sustainable practice, that would probably be a pretty good investment. Mm, a lot of food for thought for everybody, I would say. Yes. I'd love to continue this conversation, <laughs> so I would <laughs> risk going over time. So to conclude this conversation, like what is your hope for the future? Like what are your aspirations? Uh, how do you see sounds like design evolving as well? Because, of course, times are changing, and I think, yes, different methods. yes. I've set myself a goal for the next 10 years to have a thousand architecture practices go through Sounds Like Design's methods and become better communicators. So whether that's people doing review and reset 
or undertaking my course and then putting those lessons into practice. If I could see a thousand firms, so a hundred firms a year for the next 10 years, I think that that would start to have a significant impact on the profession in Australia. And that that would then have flow on effects to, you know, the demand for architecture services and the quality of our built environment. So hopefully I can achieve that goal. In the very short term, I'd love for listeners to sign up to receive the drill because that's the first and the lowest risk and lowest cost way of engaging with sounds like design and you know you can learn a lot by skimming that every week and just put some of the ideas that I'm you know peppering through the newsletter into practice as a way of testing whether those things are useful and relevant in your business and I'm also really keen for people to contribute to these conversations so you can do that on Instagram and LinkedIn and I have a Facebook group for architects which is called Architecture Matters by SLD where sometimes these conversations from the drills spill out and we talk about them and unpack them and essentially I set up Sounds Like Design as a way of promoting conversations around architecture. So if we can get more people talking, then I feel like, you know, that's a really important part of this discussion. Yeah. Well, I'm feeling optimistic about this conversation. Yes. I feel optimistic about it too. Like I think that architects have so much to offer and we really need what they can offer and the transformation that they can help us achieve. We need that now more than ever. And I think that the market is more receptive to that message than it ever has been in the 20 years that I've been doing this work. So I feel really optimistic about the future as well. I think there's you know, there's so much um, opportunity and chances for people to have an impact. So that's something to look forward to. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thanks again to our guest and advocate, Rachel Bernstone. Thank you so much for your support and if anyone would like to subscribe to Rachel's services or engage her for more in-depth assistance, you can find out more of her work via soundslikedesign.com.au. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce podcasts by architecture fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Kimberly Huey, Hilary Duff and Max Legal-White. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. 
The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.